The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirerod. Today, we bring you Griffin Barber's discussion with Sharon Lee and Steve Miller about their new Leaden Universe novel, Salvage Right. But first, the news. The July hardcovers and trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up, we have the subject of today's podcast interview, Salvage Right, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. A door never closes, but a window opens. With origins in the old universe, the malevolent, acquisitive intelligence of Tensori Light sought to infect others with itself and send those agents out into the wide new universe to infect even more. For centuries, two heroes stood between Tensori Light and the vulnerable universe, Lightkeepers Jin Sin Yosfelium and Lorith of the Sanderat. Just when it seemed that they, merely human, must fail, Tensori Light, enfeebled by age systems, succumbed to the stress of a unique spatial event and died, leaving the station a shell. Luckily, the Lightkeepers have backup. Next up, we have Between Princesses and Other Jobs by DJ Butler. They want to rescue damsels in distress. They have to pay the bills. Indrajit is a poet from a dying race, looking for his successor. Fix is a failed monk pining for his lost love. They're swordsmen and thinkers, heroes in their hearts and in their deeds. They also recover stolen documents, unravel financial fraud, escort shipwrecked diplomats, and hunt in the ruins beneath the city for missing academics. Meanwhile, the criminals they investigate, rival jobbers, sorcerers, spies, assassins, and other mysterious parties get more and more reason to want them dead. And finally, a reissue of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. Since the opening of a gate to other worlds in our solar system, Earth has become the personal fiefdom of the Horvath. There's no way to win, and Earth's governments have accepted the status quo. To free the world from the grip of the Horvath is going to take an unlikely hero, a hero unwilling to back down to alien or human governments, unwilling to live in slavery, and with enough hubris to think he can win. That salvage right between princesses and other jobs and live free or die, all available now. And that's it for the news. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller have been one of the most prolific writing teams of any era, furnishing 25 novels and a plethora of short stories, novellas, and short novels containing additional content for fans of the Leaden universe over the last 30 plus years. Both have written other well-received works independent of their shared universe, but one gets the impression that the Leiden universe is something of a joyful obsession for both authors. This is manifestly a good thing for fans, as we are here to discuss no less than the 25th novel, Salvage Right, forthcoming from Bain Books. Hello and welcome, Sharon and Steve. Hi, Hello, hello. So uh, I, I think you might recall from the last time we did this that I have a, the cool question uh from previous interviews uh what is the coolest thing about the salvage right uh for each of you well for, for me it was the the energy of writing the book it was a fun book to write um and of course authors have very strange ideas about what's fun um <laughs> but, 
but write, the rush of writing a book that wants to be written is a, is a gift. Um, and the characters in this book in, in particular were, were just awesome. The chemistry was beautiful between the, the entire cast. And I think it was, it was cool to us because <clears throat> the characters and this entire story were, were very fresh. They were, the, a lot of the characters were in the universe, but not interacting necessarily with each other. And all of a sudden, here it was that these people had to do this right now. So it wasn't they had like, to make it work. And so it wasn't like it was part of the, the longer story arc uh, that we had been uh, working with over, over time. It just, it, it all just fell in together to run. Neat. So uh, from the afterward, there's a real world story behind how the Tensori Light came to occupy some headspace for the two of you. Uh, Care to share with your fans what that story was? Yeah, you. you. <laughs> when we when we go to when we went to the ocean the first time when we were in Maine, we took with this a um, a weather radio, and uh, because it was supposed to also have FM, AM, and all of that, but it turned out that in Old Orchard Beach you couldn't get anything else but the weather radio where we were staying. So we had the weather radio on in the, in the back, and. The, the weather radios, uh, when they're serving an entire coastal region, will tell you there is um, the weather at, at Jodrell's Bank and weather here, the weather there. But we kept coming up with the... Um, and they have boys and lighthouses that report that report in, and so you know where, where the um, action is. And they circulate through, I, I guess... A dozen of them? I guess they repeat a dozen of them, the top of Mount Washington and then... Um, and then and then the rest of them. And it turned out that there was a place that kept coming in, Matinicus Rock is not reporting. And it sounded so attitudinal, like, you know, you can't make me report. And so over, over time, we would be listening and there would go Matinicus Rock. And the last time, <clears throat> pardon, last time we went down, we took our same weather radio and there it was again that two out of three times Matinicus Rock was not reporting. And now Sharon can. Well, Matin and Matinicus Rock obviously is a, is a real thing. Um, if you look at the beginning of the book where we acknowledge the reasons we wrote the book, um, one of the um, reasons is for Abby Burgess and Matinicus Rock light station. Matinicus Rock Light Station is this huge chunk of granite in the middle of the ocean um, with two lighthouses, one on each, one on each side, and the keeper's farm in the middle. It is this, the house is granite. And way back in the 18-somethings, Abby lived there with her dad, her elder brother, her mom, her sick mom, and two, um, two younger sisters. And one day, dad went to Rockland for supplies. Elder brother was out fishing and a storm came up. The storm of storms came up and Abby quickly realized that they were not going to make it if they stayed in the house. So she moved her family into one of the lights and ran out to get the chickens, came back in, a big roller came over and when it retreated, the house was gone. Wow. And for 28 days, 
For 28 days, this, this young the, woman who was barely- a, She was 16. She was a teenager. She ran the light by herself. The lights did not go out. This she, is the only- she, she ran the light by, her, by herself. For, it took them 28 days before they could get anybody else out uh, to her. They were eating, as Sharon was doing some research, they were eating an egg a day. Good thing she saved the hens. And um, they had cornmeal. Part of part of it had been chicken food, but it wasn't. And um, so they had something something to eat. Of course, they did have, and even water was a problem because, because they were in the middle of the, the ocean. ocean. Yes. And so they managed to make it work. So all of this urgency also helped. Um, Define tensorially. Um, the attitude and the and the whole hostile environment. Right. Um, that's very neat. I, I didn't realize the, the extent to which that was. So the, the forward gives you a, br a brief instance of, of what's what it's about. That's cool. Uh, especially given that, you know, it fits into the universe that you've set up with the Leiden universe with the uh, the creeping of the uh, uh, dust, is it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's in, interfering with uh, loop oh, travel. Yeah. So very cool. Uh, so uh, the events of Salvage Right seem to tie up threads from a variety of earlier novels. And you kind of touched on that, I think, when you said it kind of cried out to be written. Uh, mm -hmm. But the story is as much about family, both chosen and born into, as anything else. Uh, do either or both of you come from large families or kinship groups or uh, have you <laughs> to those? Um, <clears throat> I come from a um, fairly large, large family, and it was a complex family. Um, Back when people weren't divorcing, my <clears throat> my grandmother had gotten divorced, and then later on my mother got divorced, and so there were some remarriages there, and that happened on both sides of the family. So uh, I think the first time Sharon came to to visit for an event, <laughs> they kept saying Sharon doesn't say anything. Why not? But she was in a room where. There were like five uncles and 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 uh, all of them holding forth. Five uncles and plus my my brothers and my sister and and et cetera et cetera. So it was always very active. Uh, for our Fourth of July picnic, we would end up with about two hundred people uh, for the Fourth of for the Fourth of July picnic, and um, this this kind of a an event we we could hold a sudden picnic on a weekend and we'd end up with 50 people just say hey why don't you come on over so it was that kind of a family um family event thing going yeah. i had always wanted to know what it would be like to be in a family that worked which is not to say that everybody agrees with everybody else but everyone is understands each other and knows where they're coming from and respects where they're coming from um what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are so we can help each other and and at one point in salvage right jensen who is our hero is talking to a, to renzel who he's just met and renzel has said something that is patently crazy just patently crazy and jensen says well to himself well if my cousin renzel is mad it's best to know that yes um and moves on so let's see, you know, where his where his funny parts are, and we'll work around it. Um, so, in that's we're all a little crazy on some topics. So this this is the respectful and the let's all help each other, which is a recurring theme in the book. Um, 
as the tying up threads, it mostly ties in. That's a better way of putting it, yeah. yeah Sean started, started the whole situation with the tensori like rescue um, by a contact he made in a completely unrelated book yeah. called Trader Sleep. Um, yeah. But he made a contact and was talking to them and the Ginobili family is part part of the movers or part of the movers in the background for tensory lighting and that's where that came from and theo of course and so, well theo you need to do something with theo so he said <laughs> he sent theo to the light to help um but theo had previously met some um the noblies well she had, yes she had also met them do um through her work with the uncle who was also a figure in this book. Boy, big party of Tensori like that. <laughs> well, that, I didn't necessarily mean that you ended things, but you tied things in. Yes, that's a better, much better way of putting it. One would think that you're a writer, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, yes, that was one of the things that was kind of impressive to me was that the illustration of the kinship group, uh, but then also there's the kind of the, the wider kinship group of, uh, in, in this case, the spacers. Uh, mm -hmm. where they're, you know, everyone's like, Jensen seems to be surprised repeatedly that how much people are willing to to th throw in and pitch in to help out and that kind of thing, which from my experience has been, yes, family, but also uh, I'm a motorcyclist and uh, a boater uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, on the water, nobody's out there to help you except for other people out on the water. So you got to be you know, courteous and you try and help out where you can when you see somebody in distress you try and help them out same thing on the motorcycle kind of thing it's uh, it's yeah. trying to help each other out so i i thought that was a neat capture of that uh well, there's a, there's volunteer Pardon? volunteer firemen and also my my favorite is um convention convention fandom yeah I mean, if something goes wrong everybody who does has anyone here ever worked on a convention before we need help now yeah, and we've we've seen that. There's there's a, a another thing that's um, going on too is that Jensen comes from his Leiden background, and that's a culture a cultural thing where the the spacers who are not simply Leiden but the the spacers who are spacers he comes from a uh, a period uh, I can't give away too much but he comes from a particular period of Leiden history, where the Leidens don't simply run out and help each other. Then at that point, the Leidens- the, the clan wars were going the, on. The clan wars were going on, and you hung with your clan, or, or you were or very cautious, yeah. or your team, yes, because he was a member of a, uh, a scout team. But otherwise, uh, you did not do that kind of reaching out. If somebody was having problems, they were having problems. If they asked for help, you might. But it wasn't simply a voluntary thing. It was a different, an entirely different kind of a culture. And to be fair, Jensen has not had a very good two hundred years. Oh. No, he, he definitely hasn't. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things we'll get to in a, in a few moments. But uh, so again, I, I, I touched on this pretty strongly already. But the, I enjoyed how the crews and ships came out of the woodwork to insist to assist the Tensori Lights crew. Uh, certainly there were opportunities for improving relations and such, but it seemed to me that the crews were there simply because it was the right thing to do, or at least some of them were. Uh, did this spring from uh, your personal experience uh, uh, from the uh, the con scenes, from the 
the Steve from your family kind of thing, or uh, was it a hopeful glimpse? I, I have two two quick examples. One, um, at one point, Sharon and I were in a situation where we decided we needed to move. And having determined that we were going to move, we found out that if we moved within the next 12 hours, we didn't have to pay the next month's rent. We weren't responsible for the next three years worth of a um, of a um, housing contract. We could get out at all. We had 12 hours to move. And I called up one of my brothers and I said to my brother, Ron, can we get a little help here? Do you have any ideas? He said, sure. And about three hours later, we were mostly out of the house. We were moved. He brought a, he brought a crew. They brought boxes. They, brought, they started at this cabinet and they just packed stuff. They, they started, and, they brought boxes. They brought several trucks. Um, he had lived he had lived and, and worked with a number of people who had um, who had that kind of equipment around, and he lived among a, at that point among a, a group of people who suddenly had to move sometimes, and they knew how to do it. And they knew how to do it. They even brought the neighbor cat, <laughs> <laughs> who had jumped into the trunk by accident, so we had to bring that one back. Um, but yeah, and the same thing at conventions. There was, for an example, one would be SunCon many years ago in Florida, where the um, hotel went into bankruptcy as the convention was starting. Um, wow. Many, many things that were supposed to be going on weren't, weren't able to go on. There were sections of the hotel we couldn't use anymore. It was dark. <laughs> um, there were rooms that we couldn't use because of the new people coming in said, eh. And in essence, um, I was lucky enough to be part of the art show that got put together probably in, in about two and a half or three hours by the assembled East Coast art show people who all knew what to do, but this isn't how it was going to be done. And they said, okay. Um, so we, sort we of a straw boss a, happened. We can have and, an art show and um, yeah. and people can look at the art. And so. and that that's what they focused on. They put, put it together. It wasn't uh, as pretty as it might have been, um, but it, it was an art show and it all happened. And again, it was all dragged together for people. Yeah, I know how to do this. He knows how to get him over here. So, yeah. Yeah, so the, the first instance there with your move is almost like a barn raising in reverse. <laughs> like, let's, yeah. let's put it all together. Yeah, having all having moved a lot as, as a kid, I, I think that that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing because even your best friend, especially if they own a pickup truck, they're, they're not a fan of, of moving you. No, no, but, so, but we were lucky. Yeah. No, we called we we called in. in, yeah. in a, you know, there there were some mobs there, and we kind of said, "Okay, we're calling them all in." Very neat. So uh, I very much appreciate this look into the aftermath of violence, because the events on the Tensori Light were extremely violent uh, for a couple of people and uh, others as well. Um, uh, and violence of the very worst kind, because there's a, there's kind of a, a lot of violations and repeated violations of uh, uh, two of the characters in any case, and how the survivors can struggle to overcome the psychological traumas they endured. Uh, I think the way you presented it was very authentic and really realistic. Um, did you come to that with intent, or did the situation you'd place the characters in, uh, namely the lightkeepers, uh, dictate how it was going to roll out? Yeah. Um. Tinsuri Light, the, the whole 
business with Tensorulite. Um, the space of Tensorulite was a novella written in 2011 while we were on the train through the Reno Worldcon. And it happened because I had been bothered by a header, a chapter header in Scout's Progress talking about having left my ring for Ernest at Tensori Light and how to get it back. And I went, geez, what on earth is going on there? So I wrote a short story about it and I figured that was the end of that. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> Scout's Progress was, was published in 2001. That's where the chapter header came from. The story was written in 2011 in the Alliance of Equals, Alliance of Equals in 2020, I guess. It came to light that the Lear Institute was after Tensory Light to bring it around to its own use. And I went, really? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, and somewhere back in there in, in a book I don't know, the uncle had made a throwaway line about Tensori Light. Yep. Um, but, so this has been decades in the making, right? This, this book. Um, but what happened was once you have the situation and then you're going to write about the even the aftermath of the situation that you set up, you have to look at what it really means. Right. What did it mean that this was these things were able to happen not once but over and over again? And that the light keepers could persevere in the face of this really terrible situation um, gives you some idea of what human beings are actually capable of and the role that, that being able to hope really, um, really gives you strength. So right. that, not so much the things that we've experienced mm -hmm. ourselves, but once you start thinking about, okay, how would this work? Um, that's that's when you get the immediacy. You said it all there, okay? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, which characters uh, or character from Salvage Right would you most want to meet? Met them all, like them mostly. Um, <laughs> I'd like to hang out with Clarence. And I think um, maybe um, maybe Joyita. Um, because Joyita is he's he's a smart ass. He's a, he, he he's a wiseacre. He's a he's a and you can hardly get more self-made than Joyita. Um, in in a lot of ways, um, started started off as a stupid little um, and a, almost literally a stupid little program, program on the side um, that people kept saying. Oh, uh, here you can do this too. Here you can do this too. Here you can do this too, and grew into uh, a functioning person. And that's that's a um, that that's a hard one. Yeah. So, okay. Joita. <laughs> My personal would be, uh, I think, is is probably uh, Katie. Okay. Okay. I can see that. Uh, I I. Uh, it was neat to see that that uh, that development was very uh, cool, and it's not to give anything away. It's very cool. Uh, so, uh, which character do you want to avoid, like the plague, and why? Oh, Director Formine, big big woman. Don't want to have anything to do with her. <laughs> and <clears throat> we we've had people ask us before the the question of who who would you like to go to lunch with, who would you want to go to dinner with, or that right. kind of thing. Right. 
and we've we've tried to explain from time to time that our our what people think of as the lead characters uh, in the entire thing, Valcon and Miri. I really don't want to be where Valcon and Miri are, because something big will happen. <laughs> the, the, the chance of something happening seems to be right there. This is why we had Theo being called a nexus of violence. Uh, it's this. This is the so probably um, I probably really wouldn't want to meet the uncle. Um, and no, no, but his sister turned out well. <laughs> and I mean, so talk that, about talk about a man scientist you love. <laughs> um, so really, pro probably the uncle I, I I would not want to meet, but that's because I know the circumstances regarding the uncle. Right. Yeah, that, for me, that 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 uh, we for twenty years in law enforcement, they they call that you know individuals like that they call them Captain Clusters, because <laughs> no matter where they go, some cluster is about to blow, break out. Going to blow up. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, that, I I totally get that about Uncle and and about those those main mainline characters that they, yeah they're pretty likely that you're going to be caught up in something. So unless you're ready to go on an adventure, it's probably not the best uh, idea. Uh, so uh, which character would you want as an ally? Well, it depends on what kind of trouble I'm in. Um, just for general, general mayhem, I guess, Theo. I was going to say, Theo, Theo is pretty close. Yeah, Theo and... Um, and through Theo, of course, Pashimo these days. Well, but, but the, only, yeah, reason, the um, only reason that Theo doesn't um, totally shake shake the uh, universe to pieces is because she has a competent crew who are willing to say to her, "No, don't do that." <laughs> um, one of the um, one of the things that's ongoing in the entire series uh, when you're dealing with Corval uh, is the question of, "Well, what would you do?" Something. And and the response from a from a child who is eight years old to somebody who is um, 79. I do something. Something would have to be done. If somebody has to do something, oh, I guess I'm somebody. Uh, it's, it's the case of, <clears throat> if, if this happens, what will you do? I'll do something. And it's... But this, this book has many people with many very strange um, professions. I mean, do we have Signor Vioni who, who is a, sci a researcher, a researcher, that's what right. she would call it. Um, and an expert in system architecture and other weird and arcane machines. We have Tali Jones, who has the very strange profession of mentoring AIs. And since AIs had previously been illegal, he has a, he, his profession is mentoring people who don't exist. Right. Um, so that and, they can be better people. And he has a reputation as being the best of it, right. though they're so, um, hasn't hasn't good, good has, to have in a fight? Yeah, yeah has, that's true. Um, um, so no, it's it's an interesting question, but it really does depend on what what do I need? Yeah, um, for me, it's actually it's Tolly. Is it uh, okay? Because I, I like the fact that well, even while he's busy or has his own personal concerns, he's helping everybody else. It is an interesting character. For me, for me, that's, yeah, well, they are certainly, but the, for me, that's very important. Mm -hmm. uh, often the best way to help yourself is to help others while you're working through it, right? Yes. And so he has this enormous existential threat to himself, 
into his life. And yet he's still, you know, he literally turns away from whatever it is he's doing to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, remarkable for me. Uh, so penultimate question uh, for us today. What, aside from the entertainment value, do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading Salvage Right? Hope is, hope is precious and we do better when we help each other. Good. That's, <clears throat> that's kind of the way it works. And uh, it's, it's helped. We've had so much help uh, in getting our books together and uh, as I said, you know, being able to call, called one person up and said, get us out of here. We got out of there. Right. Uh, we were at a convention at one point where um, Sharon was being bothered by somebody. And we let it know that Sharon is being bothered by this person. And for the entire rest of the convention, there was a crew of people. And who ran interference. Um, ran, ran interference and made sure that um, the, the, that person didn't come anywhere near and there was no, there was no problem. Um, just um, so those kind of things. Um, yeah, the getting help where you need it. And sometimes and you have help you giving help and you also sometimes need to remember to ask. Right. And that, that's a, that's a, an important thing because. Uh, and one of the, the <clears throat> parts of Jensen's journey is that um, he didn't think to ask. He's been getting orders. Okay, you have to tell us what time it is and how much time people have put in so we can pay them properly. He's like, it's been you know, 200 years since I just think about any of this stuff. Um, and then when help arrives, he, as you say, he, he's stunned that people would actually step forward to help. Um, and then to go from that to reciprocating and all right, we're all in this together. Let's yes, make all of this the, work. That's the becoming. That's the becoming team. Becoming we. Becoming we. When, yeah, that that's yes, we are group. We are group. We we are doing this. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So that's, that's powerful. Very cool. All right. So, what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at, and uh, what other work can we look forward to uh, from you? <clears throat> We're going to be at Astronomicon. Astronomicon in um, Rochester. Rochester in October, and um, probably at Boscone in the um, February. In February, beyond uh, beyond that, we and have. I'm wanting to go to the Nastic and Buffalo. And there's a, and also there's a, a potential Worldcon in World Worldcon in World Seattle, Con. I oh. think. Okay. There, there, there's different. The the Fanish, um calendar is rather strange right now and so it's hard for us to know that far sometimes to know that far ahead uh, as for the other things that are going on i'm still working on working with or working at whacking at jeffrey <laughs> Je jeffrey and um that's due to be to be turned in by the end of the year um i am working on ribbon dance which is the book i sh we should have been working on when we wrote salvage right because it wouldn't get out of my brain. Um, and Ribbon Dance is due on Tony's desk in August. And so probably the probably next year for that. We're not sure on the on the Jethree book. And, and we have a short story coming out. Um, in the last train out of Kepler, I forget the number. Um, yes, we have we have it, we have a Lee Aiden Universe Western. Oh, great. <laughs> so. 
And that, that was that was interesting and fun to write. That, that was fun to write. And um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think and what we else. We still have three more books under contract, but we don't know. They're not scheduled jobs. Neat. Well, I can't. I hope your fans will be able to find you. I, I hope you had a good time today with us on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Uh, and we'll see you on the next one, uh, hopefully, that, that comes out. This okay, is, thank you very much. Have a good is, one. You too. This has been the Bain Free Radio Hour with Griffin Barber, Sharon Lee, and Steve Miller discussing salvage rate. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. It took longer than she thought to fill up the flatbed's gas tanks, jury-rig a power supply for the trailer, disconnect the city's power connections, rig a sling under the trailer, and use the crane. Magnet turned off to lift the trailer carefully onto the flatbed and secure it. She made sure that they had Winwolf's sword and pistol. If he lived until startup, they'd deliver him and his weapons to the nearest hospice. Tinker found the abandoned cancel spell, folded the paper carefully so the rune itself wasn't creased, and tucked it into her front shirt pocket. If things went wrong, perhaps the spell could still work after Windwolf died, severing any magical bond between them. The trailer's now empty air conditioning slot conveniently fit up against the flatbed's back window, allowing her to crawl between the trailer and the truck's cabin. Oil can would drive, being the more cautious of the two of them, and certainly also the more patient. Tinker made sure everything was green with oil can, then slithered through the hole to ride beside Windwolf. What is happening? Windwolf peered through slit eyes, his voice paper thin. We're moving the trailer to someone that can help you. The house is moving? Yes. He closed his eyes and exhaled a very slight laugh. And you humans used to think of us as gods. The Allegheny Observatory sat high on a hill, deep in an old city park. A steep and twisty road wound up to it. In the winter, the road made an excellent bobsled course. In the middle of the rainy night, in a teetering trailer, with a dying elf, it was nightmarish. The rim, however, cut through on the other side of the park, taking out one vital bridge to a saner route. At the turn of the millennium, the district of Observatory Hill had apparently been struggling. The gate effect and the loss of the bridge had killed it completely. Whereas in other parts of Pittsburgh, the rim remained a sharply marked borderline between Elfholm and transported Earth, here a young forest of Elfholm trees, a mile in from the rim, stood in testament to how much of the neighborhood had been lost. None of the houses had actually been torn down. 
a scattered number still stood, lurking like undead under the trees. Some of the buildings had caught fire, whole blocks burning to rubble before the fire department could check the blaze's progress. The rest had just been whittled away, the windows, the doors, the sinks, the toilets, the copper pipes, and finally the nails. Little by little, they'd been looted by those desperate for finished building materials. Soon, only sodden white piles of plaster would be left. Now, Observatory Hill was just a commune of scientists huddled around the Allegheny Observatory bulkhead. A hundred years ago, the area had been moneyed, and stately Victorian homes remained, refurbished to act as dorms for the transient scientists. Mean age hovered at 27. Postdoctorate, but still under the authority of older, well-established scientists on Earth. Every thirty days the population changed. Because of the observatory, lights were low, but always on. The astronomers studied the parallel star system during the night. Xenobiologists studied the alien life during the day. They shared resources of backup generators, kitchen facilities, cooking and cleaning staff, and computers. Lane Skansky's home sat near but apart from the dorms. A pristine white fence guarded a lush garden of roses, hosta, lilaefrin, and tulilium. Lane called the garden her consolation prize for giving up a life in space after being crippled in a near-fatal shuttle accident. Oil can pulled the flatbed to a stop, headlights aimed at the front door of Lane's grand Victorian home, and called back, Tink, we're here! Tinker slid into the cab beside him. He's still alive. She had spent the ride wishing she had asked Windwolf about the cancel spell in his few moments of awareness. There seemed no polite way to say, What does this do? Do you mind if I cast this on you before you die? To a man mauled while protecting you. She had kept her silence. Besides, there was still hope. I'll go see if Lane's home. It's four in the morning, Tink. Well, if she's in town, she's here then. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judgowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.